Hello and welcome back to Rocket Pod, the brand new podcast where myself, Harry Damon, James Cuss, and producer Peter Haynes are on a mission to find some of the most incredible individuals from across the world, deconstruct their stories, and share them with you, our listeners at home. And on today's show, we are joined by Pardip Crowd, the CEO and founder of Voyager Capital Partners. And in our conversation with Pardip, we talk all about the complex world of investment, the process SMEs can go through if they are looking for early funding. We look at EIS, SEIS, and everything in between. And we also hear about how Pardip's family had such an incredible influence on her success. Let's get this going. Enjoy. Welcome, Pardip. It's nice to have you on Rocket Pod. Uh, just for our, view, our listeners out there, so Pardip and I, uh, we met for the first time in Copenhagen. Uh, we were on a strategic offsite uh, for one of my clients at the time. And I think one thing that really stood out to me about Pardip was uh, her values and I guess life's philosophies were, were kind of well synced with my own. Um, Pardip loves to travel. And um, I think it's more than just making the money. Um, and uh, we can kind of get on into the kind of the humanity side of, um, I guess, Pardip's life and you know some of her interests there. So I think we we kind of headed off um, with a with a alignment of values, and then um, later on uh, we uh, uh, Pardip joined Flexi as an advisor, uh, and we can talk a bit more about uh, Pardip's um, background uh, and uh, her time at LDC and um, Pardip's very experienced working with boards and raising capital and has worked with lots of business leaders and entrepreneurs. So I'm uh, really excited to have you uh, join us, Pardip. Okay, so what, what gets you up in the morning? Um, what gets me up in the morning is, well, a number of things. Firstly, the amount of work I've got to do. So I like to get up early to make sure that I get an early start because I like to feel at the end of the day that I've achieved a lot. So, because um, as we all know, your to-do list never shortens. It just continues to get bigger. So... I like to get up and make sure that I'm on top of everything. Um, and also just to make sure that I'm there because I'm running my own business, everything becomes very different. You start to view everything very, very differently. Um, and I'm there. I want to be there for my clients and making sure that I'm delivering the best service possible for my clients. It becomes more like, you know, I don't let anything slip. There's no... And because the buck stops with you, no matter who's helping you, it all stops with you. Um, so I always want to make sure that I'm there and delivering exactly what I've promised to deliver so that my clients feel that they're getting exactly what they expected from me. So um, could you tell us a little bit about your your upbringing? Um, and I, I guess where I'm getting to is um, very interested to hear about where your drive comes from, because I, I know, obviously, I know you reasonably well um you're very driven you're very ambitious uh and but could you give our listeners a flavor of kind of wh where you grew up um you know and uh, and maybe some of the things that probably made made the biggest impression on you as a young girl uh, and kind of almost like the journey where, where you've kind of come from 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 then to now yeah yeah um so i was brought up in leeds um in yorkshire um, to um, a family of immigrants. So my grandfather emigrated from India to the UK in the early 60s. Um, and in India, his father was the mayor of where we lived, the area where he lived, and he just wanted to leave and 
come to the UK and start a new life. And when he came here, the qualifications didn't mean anything. Um, and he started to work in a foundry. So breaking iron and busting iron. And so really hard, very labor intensive work. And then my parent, my dad came over here. Then my mum was separately came to the UK, moved to Leeds as well. So they met in Leeds. And um, my, I watched my grandfather and my dad work in um, labor intensive jobs, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, my grandfather would work. And I think from a young age, we were always brought up to understand what hard work is that everything comes with hard work so you can't just rest you have to you know you can't just rest on your laurels or rest on just kind of breeze through life it is you have to put the work in but when you do put the work in you can achieve anything you want to achieve so that was kind of very very ingrained in us and from a young age it was very ingrained in us that um my grandfather wanted us to complete our education everything was about education you know we do our GCSEs, A-levels, universities. So even as a child at primary school, I knew I was going to go to university. So there was no option. And I think what happened was they instilled this level of confidence in me without knowing, as in, I just knew I was going to go to uni. It wasn't, it wasn't, can I get into uni? It's like, I'm going to university because my grandfather said, you go to university and you can get in as long as you work hard, you'll be able to get in. Um, so I think that kind of ethos was very, very, it was, we were just around it all the time. So with my grandmother worked, my mum worked. So it wasn't kind of everybody worked in the family. Um, so I think that level of hard work and, you know, having to really kind of strive for what you want and nothing's going to just land on your lap was very much there all the time. And I think it's still, it's still there for, with me. And even now when I look back, I actually, a lot of my, um, you know, where I am in my career, in my life, it is down to my parents, my grandparents, to be honest. And it's kind of those, that confidence that they instilled in me without knowing and without me knowing that instilled in me as well. So, yeah, to conclude on that, um, I guess my parents made a lot of sacrifices, as did my grandparents make a lot of sacrifices, um, you know, in the first 20 years um, of their working lives. Um but the sacrifices really paid off. Um, you know, they kind of they got to a position where they had a couple of properties, they were mortgage free, they had no debts, they were able to go on nice holidays, but it did take a lot of hard work, um, a hell of a lot of hard work and commitment and determination. And and you know, that's kind of where myself and my, my 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 brother and my cousins and my family like that's kind of you know all of that's been instilled in us from from a very young age interesting so you had a you had a real emotional um as far as your emotional network or your family was really really strong um so you and you you in, you were in, instilled from a young age that you could do anything i mean you, there was no reason why you thought you you couldn't go to uni like you said so you had that support uh, and you were around folks were your your parents and your grandfather really hard working um is was there much of a difference between your your grandfather's uh, work and your father's work was there any or were they did they do similar things or um can you talk a little bit about that because i'm i i guess what it reminds me of is that that book by malcolm gladwell outliers when they talked about the different generations there's almost that progression and and that move towards 
uh, white collar or education. Um, it's almost like the next generation can do a little bit more than the, the previous. And it's just kind of this evolution. Is that, is that uh, manifested itself in your family, do you think? So my, so my grandfather, so my dad has um, two brothers and two sisters and my dad's older brother went down the route of when, when he came to this country, cause they went to high school in this country. And then he went on to further education. He became a dental technician and kind of took that white collar route. My dad actually decided to just work. He went to work with my granddad in the foundry and he just enjoyed that kind of, and then he trained to be a mechanic, a car mechanic. And then, so he trained himself in various aspects, aspects, and then he went into working, but he was always actually been in labor work. And then he went to college and learned about the union. So he was a member of the union, you know, he was kind of an active member of the union. There's loads of stuff that he was doing, but definitely. So my grandfather wasn't involved in, um, you know, unions or various things like that, but so they did kind of, you know, my, my dad took that route, um, you know, down the kind of, you know, labor kind of type, type work, you know, working. And, and I guess, you know, that, that's why, that's kind of where I saw a lot of, a lot of the kind of hard work that they did. And my granddad and my dad's, you know, view for us was always like, I never want you to work as hard as I've had to for not as much money. So for example, work as hard as we did, but get paid better than we've been paid because the hours they're putting in are just crazy and the money they're getting is ridiculously low so that's what they wanted from us is that you know work all the hours in the day it doesn't matter what what, where you have to travel what you have to do um just do what you have to do but we want to make sure that you earn more than we did so you're not kind of so you can enjoy your life you're not just kind of paying your mortgage and paying your bills you can actually go on holidays you can actually buy a nice car or you know whatever it may be um so I guess that was kind of, and you know, my, my, I always kind of, I've done some work helping kind of inner city schools kind of think about this a lot is that success of a child and where they get to in their life, it does come from confidence and confidence either comes from two places, mainly it's your home or your school. And I didn't go to a private school, so I went to a state school and they weren't very confident in selling, to be honest. And I was kind of top of the class. I was kind of very good at what, you know, top set for everything and got good grades. Um, but nobody guided us in terms of what career we were going to do. So there's no level of guidance. But I was fortunate that I had that confidence from home. So I didn't really need it from from school. But then, I, you know, it's kind of the unfortunate situation where you don't get the confidence from home or school. Then you get stuck and you get into a cycle of where you're trapped and you can't progress. So as you say, from generation to generation, people progress. But what happens is you get locked in a cycle of we can't do anything because you don't have that confidence naturally instilled in you. Um, so I was fortunate and I always look back and think I was fortunate that I had a, that in abundance at home. Um, and, you know, as a girl, my grandfather said don't ever think that you can't do anything that a boy can't do you know you can do whatever a, a boy can do whatever a man can do there's no such thing as you know a man's you know back in the 80s like you know men went to work and did certain things and women did certain nursing or you know certain mm -hmm. things just kind of very stereotypical jobs but my granddad my granddad was like no you can do whatever you want to do that's wonderful wow to have someone like that in your life to to, to say that at such a young age amazing I think your point on finding confidence through one or home or school is quite interesting because one thing that I've I've noticed more recently is is with 
well with schooling system and with people with the this kind of when I was at sort of on the, on the school grounds and stuff you have a lot of comparison a lot of actually people that do stuff differently are actually if anything frowned upon a bit like she's trying to do that or he's trying to be successful in that area it's outside of the norm of everywhere everybody else is doing so I think actually I think home what you've mentioned there is such a key influence to how you are how you up, your upbringing this sounds like you've got some amazing qualities from your family and your support uh, that you've had um, and there's a couple of things I actually wanted to touch on so firstly um, you mentioned it's university and that was that was a never an, that was always that was the route if you were to go back now and make a decision would you would you would you still do university again um, because you've had guests that had maybe done apprenticeship or maybe just didn't do further education what's your thoughts on that now and would you stay uni is still definitely the route for you um so i do, do you know now so now there are so many more options that 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 kids leaving school have so many more options and actually you know people do realize and, and then there's this whole level there's this whole thing of debt going to university as well and i was the first year where when i went to university where the fees kicked in but they're still low the fees were still low um and for me personally, I would still take the university route. Um, however, I would, what I felt like I didn't do when I was at uni is make the most of uni. And by that, I mean, you know, there's all these little clubs and kind of groups and you can just go into like a you know, music club or various things. I didn't really do that because I was just so focused on, okay, I need to get my degree. And, you know, I didn't really kind of, really make the most of all the community within university so that's one thing that would change if I if I you know if I could go back and I encourage people so even like my younger cousins I encourage them to say I encourage them to kind of make sure that they make the most of uni when they go there and kind of really explore what's out there um but you know there are so many options for children leaving school now and even you know I went to university and then after university I joined a a, an accountancy firm called KPMG to train as an accountant. But when I went there, there were some people that had joined straight after school. So you didn't have to go to university. You could actually go straight after school, join KPMG, do some other exams kind of to get into the, when you do your chartered exams. Um, but honestly, I had no knowledge of what my options were. My, my, because our school wasn't very helpful in terms of saying these are your options or this is what you can do. I had no exposure to firms like KPMG. I didn't even know who KPMG were when I applied to do accounting and finance at uni. That's how naive I was. So these are the biggest global companies in the world. And when I went to university, everybody's talking about KPMG and PricewaterhouseCoopers, et cetera. I had no idea who they were. So I asked people like, who are they? And then I applied. So I was very, very naive, but I think that was very much the environment that I was brought up in, that we didn't have any, you know, I didn't have a strong kind of university. We were the first generation that went to university. So we didn't have anybody close by to get that feedback from, you know, as I said, the school wasn't very helpful. So it's very much, we were just learning on the job. We were kind of just learning as we went along what our next what our next move what like my next move was going to be and it was the same for my brother as well um and i think one thing we did was just never say no it's funny because I, I can relate to that too part of it. so i was the first in my family to go to university um and you know you're you are definitely on your own i i also want to kind of go back so when we when you talked about your family or the school you know you either have your family 
to um, instill that confidence or your school. Your comment about clubs at university, for, for those young listeners out there that might not have the emotional support at home or at school, um, I think it's just a message to, you know, maybe seek out other clubs or, or groups of, of people um, to find that individual or, the, or that set of individuals that could actually, um, you know, help, you know, um, you know, grow your confidence and just find something you're interested in. Uh, because sometimes we have to look beyond our, our the, you know, our circles of, of influence. Um, and uh, anyway, I just thought I'd touch on that because, you know, some some folks don't have either. And it's like, you know, how, how do they get unstuck, as you as you put it? Uh, yeah. I think you're right there, James, because there are so many kind of now you can go online and find a mentor. So any area that you're interested in, you can find mentors. You can join the Princess Trust, which is really good at kind of mentorship as well. So, you know, if you can find yourself a mentor in an area that you're interested in, I think it's just it makes a huge, huge difference to kind of knowing what's out there, what you can do um, and the different routes to get there. So I, I want to touch on something else. So uh, you mentioned your grandfather had said that, you know, you could do anything a boy could do. Um, and the fact that, you know, that your career progression um, or trajectory has definitely kind of, you've definitely been in a man's world. Um, and you have, you know, you obviously had that really hard work ethic in, instilled in you. Um, you. You know, you like you said, you were at the top of your class um, at school, and I'm sure you ca- continued to, to, to do really well for university and obviously to get a job at KPMG. Uh, was that your first job? The first, yeah, okay. And then, um, so can you talk a little bit about the, I guess, some of the challenges that you've come up against? Um, I know maybe this is for later on, but, you know, I'm aware that, you know, 1% of venture capital goes to female founders, 10% goes to mixed gender uh, co-founding teams. You know, I think... Um, you know, I have three teenage daughters, um, and as a as a parent, as a father, you know, I'm looking to to raise independent young, well, independent humans. Actually, um, the 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 gender thing is really, you know, I, I'd like it to be completely. It, it is irrelevant. Um, but can you talk about your experiences um, in the corporate world, um, and and I guess any advice or um, any wisdom you can share our listeners at, at whatever stage of career they're at. Um, or or life stage yeah I think I think for me um, I it was quite weird actually because you know people would say to me sometimes oh how does it feel to be the only female in the room and most of the time in my career I have been the only female in the room in a meeting whether it's internal meeting or you know teams coming to present to us about their business they're generally there's very few you know percentage of women is you know less than 15 percent um, and when people would ask me how to feel to, to be the only woman in the room, I said, I don't, I have never noticed really. And I hadn't noticed because I didn't really think like that. So I wasn't, my mindset wasn't, you know, looking around and thinking, oh my God, I'm the only woman or I'm, I'm the only ethnic minority in the room. I didn't even think about that. I just thought, okay, what's the agenda and what are we talking about? And then just crack on. And again, I don't know if that's conf- a level of confidence that was you know kind of secretly instilled in me by my grandfather that I just didn't think like that it just didn't it wasn't even it didn't even occur to me and I didn't really really care and as I progressed actually in this whole issue of women you know the lack of representation in certain industries it's become it it is I know there's a problem and I've always seen that there's a problem there and the biggest issue is that 
um, there is a lack of representation. Therefore, there are you know, children out there that think, I can't do that job. It's not a job for me. You know, there are very, very few people in private equity that are from state schools or that are from a minority background or that are female. And there's a clear issue there because that industry is about who you know. It's not about what you know. Um, and I saw that as I went through my career. And so I think kind of, you know, generally it is, it is a huge issue because the conversations around the table are different. Men and women naturally approach things differently. You can't, you know, they do have completely different risk appetites. There's very different approaches in terms of what I would, the types of questions I would ask to a potential business that we're going to invest in versus what a male counterpart would ask. Um, and we take different approaches and you need that diversity of questions in order to make the bet be in order to make better de decisions. Um, so I guess like being, you know, being a female, have I come across challenges? Not really. You know, you do have just general differences in personalities. Like, for example, you know, we'll be in a meeting and let's say if I say something, a lot of the time, a man could take my idea and just make it his own. And he, in his head, naturally, he's come up with the idea. So, but that's just the way men operate. They'll just be thinking, right, okay, oh yeah, that's a good idea by me. And I'm like, hang on a minute. I just said that five minutes ago. It's that kind of thing where as a woman, if you see another woman in a room and she says something and, oh no, sorry, if I, if I, if I gave an idea, the woman say, part of that's a great idea. They give you the, it's just such a weird thing how men and women operate. And a lot of the time, and that's not kind of that men do that on purpose, but it's just personalities and it's just the way that, you know, our different brain, different brains are wired. Um, but I think generally I've been fairly immune to um, feeling isolated because I'm a woman or feeling you know, a minority because I'm a woman or because I'm an ethnic minority, but, um, you know, but, but there is, there is a huge, huge issue and I see it and, it and it's frustrating because, you know, one thing that I look at, you know, there are 93% of the UK population go to state schools, but I reckon 10% of them enter private equity and that's not right. You know, that is not right in terms of the, the diversity of backgrounds you've got, the diversity of insight, the diversity of what you can bring to the table when you're making decisions. The balance is so out of kilter, it's unbelievable. I'd like to take this moment to introduce to you our sponsor, Flexi, the must-have app to track and manage your subscriptions in one place. So most of us have multiple subscriptions nowadays for things like streaming services, gym memberships and food deliveries. These are great and take the hassle out of buying everyday products that we consume regularly, but it can be hard to keep track of them. That's where Flexi comes in handy, using super secure technology to connect your accounts to see all your subscriptions in a single dashboard, putting you in control of your spending. And what's more, Flexi's subscription marketplace allows you to discover new products you may love, or easy to pause, resume or cancel in a swipe or two. So give Flexi a try, it's free to download from the App Store or check out their website at www.flexiapp.uk That's F-L-E-X-Y app.uk. Back to the podcast. In terms of, you, you mentioned this, these couple of words, private equity quite a bit, and I know that you're, this is very much your focus, your business. So I'd love to learn a bit more about that really uh, from you in the next few minutes. And could you just start off by 
explain to our listeners what is private equity? Yeah. Okay. So private equity is um, private equity businesses invest. Private equity funds, sorry, invest in businesses um, in order to facilitate their growth. So it's to help them grow quicker. So if you're a business and you're fairly small on your trading, if somebody puts some money into your business, you can grow much quicker. So, you know, if you have, let's say, a cocktail business and you want to expand it because you want to sell it, you want to increase your distribution within the UK, you need money to do that. And if private equity come along and say, look, here you go, Harry, we're going to give you five million pounds, but we want 50 percent of your business for that. And you'll say, okay, because you know that with that 5 million, you're going to grow it much, much quicker. And you're going to be able to get to your end goal quicker and faster. So they accelerate growth effectively for businesses. Um, And the way I've, I always find that situation, I've worked in private equity and, you know, it's great. What they do is great. And sometimes they've got a bad reputation in, in the market because, you know, they're known kind of the bad points are they're known to come in and strip costs from your business, um, you know, fire people and all this stuff just so that they can grow your business quicker. So profits are bigger effectively. Um, and I always find, okay, that's, that's kind of the bad, you know, story that you see in the press, but the good thing is actually they do support a lot of businesses. They create a lot of jobs and they help to grow businesses much, much quicker in the UK and overseas. Um, And they help to internationalize businesses in the UK as well, because with additional investment, you can you've got the money then to say, actually, I want to take my cocktail business to America. I want to take my cocktail businesses to places in Europe. Um, The bad side of from my perspective, you know, there's a lot of good that private equity do. But the bad side of it that I've kind of thought about for a long time when I was working there is when I invest in your business, Harry. So let's say if I, you know, you're business I'm going to kind of give you five million pounds to invest in your business and and I say I want 50 percent and you say okay great then we um, you sign legal agreements and all this stuff now what happens there is you don't know why I valued your business at x why I'm giving you five million and why I think that's worth 50 percent of your business you don't know what legal agreement you're entering into you don't know which clauses in that legal agreement are relevant to you in the future when you want to sell your business or when you want to retire or when you want to do anything you don't know that and no small business knows that unless you've done a load of private equity deals before which is not often um it's you know it's not common for somebody to have done multiple um had multiple businesses invested in by private equity so i find that very unfair because there's a massive um uh imbalance between the knowledge between the business that's being invested in and the investor because the investor knows what they want why they see your business as valuable how they're gonna what they're gonna do with your business in five years time and how much they can sell it for whereas the business owner doesn't know that because nobody's telling them and there's a reason why nobody's telling them and it's because if you knew if you were well informed you would argue more for a better deal from us than we'd want to give you so my business, what I've done is I've kind of flipped sides and said, actually, I'm going to start off by working with a small business. So rather than saying to you, Harry, right, here's five million quid, I'm, I want 50% of your business. I'm actually saying to you, Harry, you're not ready for investment yet, but in a year or two years time, you might be ready for investment. 
And I'm going to work with you as an extension of your management team to make sure you're ready for investment. Your business is structured in a way that you're going to get the best valuation for your business when you do get investment. I'm going to help you to make sure that when you do get investment, you get the best terms and you're fully aware of what you're getting into and why you're getting into it. So I work with businesses rather than coming in and saying, I'm going to take 50% of your business. I'm actually working with you first to say, okay, let's make your business as solid as possible and to get the maximum valuation for your business as possible. And all of the way, the way I work with you is exactly how private equity work with a business once they've invested in it and they own 50% of it. So Private equity give businesses a lot of support, but only the only businesses that get the support are the businesses that they invest in and therefore they own a majority of. All the other smaller businesses don't get any support whatsoever and they're running around trying to look for various types of investment, whether it's private equity investment, whether it's going to a bank to get a loan, you know, all of this stuff that they're running around and doing, but nobody's helping them and nobody's telling them actually, this is how to make your business valuable. This is how to make it um sustainable and scalable um so that's effect that's effectively kind of how i've kind of turned the private equity model on its head almost and said okay let's just start with helping the businesses first in fact um so yeah thank you for sharing that part of that's um that's a really that's really useful insight um so when when i first learned of voyager capital if you remember it's uh, over a year ago um, when you shared your your vision for for Voyager, um, and it sparked that thing in my mind. I was thinking that Jim Rogers guy who wrote Investment Biker and the Adventure Capitalist. I don't know whether you ever read that book. Did you ever read Adventure Capitalist? Um, and and basically, this Jim Rogers guy would go around the world and he would you know look at the political situations, look at the GDP of these these countries, and he would invest directly into these virgin markets essentially. Um, and I think what you touched on as far as um, the way private equity is set up um, and, you know, 93%, would you say 93% come from, or, or sorry, 93% of the, of the UK's population go to state schools and, and only 10% actually go uh, work, work in this, in that um, industry. It seems that um, this diversity piece is kind of, a, it's almost like a, it's a great opportunity uh, for um, for private equity, or for almost like the the next uh, generation of private equity. And and your, as you mentioned, uh, Voyager is is helping these entrepreneurs early on, holding their hands through the growth journey, and then advising them on when they're ready to invest, and then help them structure the deal. And actually, um, as you know, the work that you've done uh, with Flexi, you know, you've really helped Flexi structure. Uh, you know, a legal framework that is is durable um, and sustainable. So I've actually, you know, um, had firsthand experience working with Pardit. Um, but I think uh, your uh, Voyager is, you know, you're you're kind of on a quest to find these these businesses that uh, that might not be on the radar of you know industry as a whole. That was what that was my impression anyway. So that you know, it's almost like you're you're looking at it from a different set of glasses uh, than, you know, your, your peer group potentially. So I think that's a, it's a, it's a fresh angle. I don't know whether you want to comment more about the, the different approach you have uh, to actually identify these businesses that you might want yeah. to coach. Well, it's, you know, every big business starts off as a small business. And, you know, what we're trying to do is look at the small businesses, but a lot of these small businesses don't survive and they don't survive because, 
they've got a great idea or they've got a great product or a great service, but they don't know how to execute it and they don't know how to take that business to the next level. They don't know how to build a sustainable business model. And with business, it's kind of very much, it's not just about selling a product or selling a service. There's a whole thing around a business on how to structure it, how to make sure that you manage your costs, your operations within the business. And I think what we want to do is these small businesses that are, you know, for us, it's very much, we need to look for small businesses that are willing to take on advice from an external party, that are willing, that want to grow, that have got strong ambitions to grow. They know where their knowledge gaps are um, and they know that they need support. Then we can go in and help. Whereas, you know, if we're coming to, you know, if we're, if we kind of have a client, so somebody introduced me to a business and they were very much like, um, um, actually, they asked um, if there was a male lead, even though I'm the lead of the company, they asked if there's a male lead. And not, not, to, not to me, but to a kind of middle person that was introducing me to them. And then they um, said, oh, I'm not sure if, I'm not sure what value they're going to add. And this business has been making the same revenue every single year for five years. Now that's not a growth business and that's not a business that somebody's going to invest in tomorrow because people want to invest in businesses that are growing every year because the demand is getting higher for their product or service. Um, so for that business, even though, you know, the, the person that introduced me to, to the business, I just said, look, this is not a client for us because a, they want a male lead and there's not, it's me. And then secondly, um, they don't feel like they need any help. And in that situation, it's impossible for me to go in and help them. Um, and I don't want to go down that route, to be honest. So we want very small, we want small, ambitious businesses that we believe we can help scale. And I always start off by, when I do meet businesses, I, I'm very, very clear about how we work, what we do and what we want to deliver. And if they don't want to, you know, if they kind of feel at some point that, okay, this is not working for us, we make our terms flexible so that they can get out. So it's not kind of, okay, we're going to lock you in, you're going to pay us a load of money and that's it. I make, we make it very, very, okay, let's just take this slowly. And it's all kind of the structure of the way we are remunerated is flexible so that we're not tearing a load of cash out of these businesses because that's the last thing a small business needs. Um, so we're very much kind of aligned fully with the growth of the business. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess, you know, what we're looking for are these small, hungry to grow businesses that want to scale and they want to scale quickly um, and are willing to kind of work in partnership with us and take that advice on board. In this situation, I'm just very interested in kind of what Harry's thoughts are around. Because I know he's kind of preparing himself to have a meeting with someone like you. And I know Harry's, but he researches these things a lot and he's kind of very in um, looking at these different yeah, what he needs to do, what he needs to come to you with, rather than just saying, I've got this business, I don't really know where it's going. I know he's kind of has a trajectory, but um, what are the main things that kind of Harry, as an example, would need to bring to you for you to go, yes, we're going to go, we're going to give you some money or we're going to give you some support. Well, like, what would the top three things be um, for a business like Harry's? Um, I think, you know, there's... Two of the main things that an investor wants to know is that their money is safe. And then secondly, that they're going to make money out of that investment. And the two ways they kind of get comfort over that is number one, 
um, is their money safe? That means, is Harry, I'm going to, sorry, Harry, to use his example. No worries. No, please. Does, does Harry have the experience and the know-how and he knows where to invest, he will know where to invest that money. So that that's kind of the security of your money. So does he know he's not just going to spend all of it on, you know, one item of machinery and it may be actually because that might be what he needs but it's kind of you know it's 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 invested thoughtfully with clear um a clear understanding of what the outcomes of that investment are going to be and then the second thing is am i going to make money and what i need to see is an as an investor is is your business scalable so with a business is always solving a problem and i want to know what is that problem how is your business solving that problem? And is that problem big enough to make, to, 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 to make this into a business? So is, a problem, is it going to solve enough problems that is scalable and you can roll it out to kind of a whole population of people? So is it solving something and is a problem big enough? And I think they're the two main things just overarching that an investor will always look at in an opportunity. Um, now, when you go down into the detail, that's another thing is that an investor wants to know, you know, the detail. They want to know that you understand how your business is going to grow year by year. They want to understand, you know, that you know your numbers in terms of investment in marketing, investment in people and what that will deliver. And they want to have a clear roadmap of the growth of your company. So if you get an investment of a certain amount today, let's say if you get a million pounds today, how long is that going to last you? So what's your burn rate every month? So how much are you spending every month on salaries, on office costs, on all of this? So you really need to go into a lot of detail to show that actually you have a clear path, you understand what your runway is, and you understand exactly what every outcome is from every pound that you're investing of, my, of an investor's money. Interesting. A lot, a lot of amazing and really useful information for me there. Um, and actually one thing is... What is the value of the investor and the qualities they can bring to the business? In I guess, obviously, you've got the money perspective, but also what about the qualities the investor can bring? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it very much depends on the size of your business and the type of investment. So if you go into a private equity firm, they have a lot of resources. So they will help you build very, very detailed strategic plans, which is something that we do for small businesses, but very detailed strategic plans. And not just plans that you kind of, you know, you have an offsite with a team and you create a plan and the next day it's in a drawer and nobody looks at it. The private equity fund will make sure that that is looked at. There, was, there will be somebody there monitoring that plan and making sure that it's executed properly. And every single part of that plan will have, it will show a contribution to profit, whether it's now or in the future. So it's super detailed and it actually delivers um, it generates, it delivers revenue targets, the sales targets. Um, and then they also bring operational expertise. So there will be kind of people within there that can come into your business and look at your operations. How can you slimline it? How can you get it cheaper? There's a whole contact base of people that they will have that can come in and support your business. So there's a lot of value private equity can add. Now, when you're a smaller business and you're raising money from it could be an individual, it could be an angel investor. And I think as a small business, I would say to small businesses, try to kind of select your investor carefully. So you want an investor that understands your business, that will be supportive of your business, that will be able to introduce you to contacts that you need in a certain industry. So, 
you know, when you do meet an investor, always, I think what happens is small businesses kind of feel that, or business owners, they feel like they're, you know, the power balance lies with the investor rather than them because they want the money. When actually you should always think about it as an equal, there's a power, there's an equal uh, relationship there because an investor will only take interest in your business if they think they can make money out of it. So the fact that you're having a meeting with an investor means that they've got some interest in your business because investors don't take meetings with everybody. Um, so the fact you're having a meeting, they have an interest in you. And then, so you, you know, you're going to effectively make them money in the future. So, but then on the other side, you need to kind of say, well, actually, what is the investor going to actually bring to me? You know, is it just money? If, if, if that's kind of where you're thinking, okay, I actually don't want any contacts or support, then you can, you could take just the money. But actually what I would say is, if you can get somebody that's going to give you more than money, are they going to give you experience? They're going to give you a shoulder to lean on. They're going to be a sounding board for you because you need all of that when you're running your own business. You need a sounding board. You need advice. You need input. Um, so, you know, it has to be you kind of almost and you should really think about interviewing the investor as well. So it's not just a one sided thing where you're presenting to the. On that subject, Pardip, can you give any examples of of a, of a business taking the wrong money um, or, or, or the right money. I mean, actually, you could go either way, couldn't you? Because I think, um, you know, all money, money isn't equal. Uh, just from what you just said, it, you know, I think finding those, those, those partners, those strategic partners, sometimes you just need money to scale and it's less important. But as you mentioned, you know, when a business is in its infancy or when it's growing, when it's small, you know, the type of money coming in is really key because it, you know, the wrong money could potentially take the business in a direction that the founders might not necessarily want to. But as long as they know there's that like that equal partnership, maybe that help will help the founder, you know, push back on the investor. Yeah. So there are. So, I, you know, there's examples that I know of that, um, you know, where somebody took investment from it was actually a fund. Um, and when 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 the business owners were signing up to the deal, they clearly didn't have very strong advice uh, in terms of they, they would have had lawyers, lawyers would have checked the documents, but their standard documents and so lawyers would have said, yeah, they're fine. Now, when it came to selling the business, they couldn't sell the business because the shareholders didn't agree to it. So they couldn't sell their own business when they had a great deal on the table because there was kind of, they had to get an agree agreement from X number of shareholders and a couple of them said no. So they couldn't sell. So now they're stuck again. And that's purely down to the fact that when you're in that situation, you're so eager to get the money that you're not paying attention to actually what am I signing up for? Um, and I think the paying the attention to what I'm signing up for is so, so, so important because that dictates how the next five years of your kind of investment period or whatever, five to 10 years of your business will operate. And that's crucial to kind of, you know, make sure that, you're not only getting the right money, but you're getting the right terms as well. Um, so I think kind of, you know, it is, it's actually, it's actually when you end up getting money from an investor where the relationship is not very good, it can really, really hurt the business as well, because it's just not, it's just a sour feeling for, and that, that will go on for years. Like, you know, it's not kind of a five day thing that you can just think, okay, it's only a week and then I'll get rid of them. It's a five to 10 year thing um so you have to you know i always say to small businesses just 
it's you know it's like getting into a marriage you just have to be very think very carefully before you get into that relationship because it is a very important relationship that's really interesting and it's actually it's instead of just taking the money it's i like that interview the investors make sure they fit well and have got the right sort of direction of where you want to take it and that at the best really now that's that's really interesting um and actually in terms of sort of because you mentioned earlier about five million for 50 percent how do private equity firms put a value on a business so yeah how, how does that work so for a you know for a, for a kind of a mature a business that's making profit generally what they do is it's a multiple of your profit so let's say if you're in um an industrial business so you've got a factory and you're making bolts or something um they will look at the profit of the business so let's say the, pro- the business is making a two million profit every year they will then go into the market and there's databases that are used to see okay what what which other bolt companies are out there and how much have they sold for over the past couple of years so that could be a bolt company in the us it could be in asia it could be in europe it could be somewhere else in the uk you then get an av and let's say they're selling for a hundred million or they're selling for 50 million. You then work out what profit they were making at the time. So if a business was sold for a hundred million and is making a 10 million pound profit, it was sold for 10 times its profit. It was sold for, you know, and then, so you look at every business and this database calculates that there are private equity databases that calculate this and you can kind of get the data And then you get an average of all of these companies to say, okay, on average, these businesses are selling for five times their profit. You then, we then look at the business that we're thinking about investing in the bolt business. And then we say, okay, well, it's making 2 million profit. The average multiple that these businesses are going for is five times. So let's value it at 10 million. So, you know, five times two. So it's always a multiple of your profit. Um, But it can be a multiple of revenue as well, because let's say if you've got a tech business, particularly, you have you know, like a Deliveroo, for example, they're not making a profit, but they've got a huge, huge sales number. So then you can take a multiple of sales. And then, you know, it gets a bit more complicated because you take a lot of other considerate things into consideration, like what type of sales are you getting for, for your business? Is it a one-off purchase or is it a subscription service? So is it that I'm actually, your customers are subscribing to your business every month? The subscription business is more valuable because you you are getting regular income every month. Whereas a one-off acquisition, you don't know when your next sale is going to be. You know, somebody's buying something one-off and then... So there are loads of different components that you add to it. But generally, as an overarching, it's a multiple of your profit. Okay. I know that's interesting. And I guess in terms of, so bringing the scale down, so you talk about if, say, 2 million revenue um, and they're looking to do a raise, one was if it's... A lot smaller scale. So, say someone is, is a twenty thousand pound profit, a hundred thousand profit, and they want to do a raise. Can they, they go through the same process? Is private equity firm still an option for them? What are the options for maybe these businesses that are smaller that are maybe just been um, going for maybe a year, but now want to to get investment involved? What would you recommend for them to do? So, <clears throat> I would number one, if you're a UK based business, um, you can get what's called EIS and SEIS relief. So, you know, that's a relief at HMRC, which is a great thing that HMRC do, where your investors get <clears throat> um, a percentage back from uh, from the government when they're when they're supporting small businesses to grow. Um, when you're at that level of invest um, scale, private equity is not an option. But if you're kind of very, very fast growing, so if you're 
on a month on month basis, if you're, you know, if you're doubling revenues every month, then a, a VC fund is likely to look at you. So an accelerator kind of type VC fund. Um, if you're steady state growth and you're saying, well, actually we need to do a lot, a lot of work and we're investing slowly, I would really consider angel investing. So there are loads of angel investor networks. Um, there are specific um, networks that invest in specific um, industries, or there are certain um, angel networks where they invest in women, female-led businesses, because mm -hmm. there's a huge lack of investment for female-led businesses. So I would definitely kind of go to the smaller networks. Right. So the VC or the angels, really. Interesting. And these are sort of groups of, well, angel investors, VCs that maybe can come together to put a percentage in each to then do your yeah, yeah, that are local that are, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so, so, so there are networks. So you can go to and present to, you know, 10, 15, 20 angels mm -hmm. in one go. So you'll do a presentation and then out of the angels, some people may say, actually, yeah, I really like your business. I'll put the whole lot in or, you know, the yeah. investor, you can, you can pitch to a number of, a group of angels and you can have investment from five of them six of them interesting or, you know, yeah yeah and i guess so for most of our audience they are in in the younger sort of i think to gen z to millennial so say um they wanted to i'm trying to think how to sort of structure this um say so they so say they they they're, they're a point in the business but they don't have any experience in any sort of raise, what would be the literally the first step to get SEIS registered or the first step to um, create a business plan or pitch deck? What would you say? Could you give maybe a quick, obviously it's not a quick process, but sort of a, where would jump off listeners podcast? Where would they go to start that? Well, I would, the first thing I do is go into the HMRC website. So you can look at SEIS and EIS and then, um, and how to get that relief in your business because that relief, once you get that relief in your business, um, you have, your business becomes more appealing to investors because of the relief that the investor gets. So, and there's clear guidance on if you um, meet the criteria for the SEIS and EIS investment um, relief. Um, and it gives you, it's, it, the guidance is quite good actually online and you can apply, do an application form. However, alongside your application form, you need to have a business plan. Um, and in a business plan, you should always kind of lay it out with an executive summary at the top and then take every st step of your business stage by stage. So it doesn't have to be very detailed. And I think people always get nervous approaching business plans, but actually if you just simplify it in your mind and say, right, okay, what is my business? What problem is it solving? How big is the market in which, um, this problem is going to be, this problem is there and this will be a solution. Um, so what's the size of the market? Who else is doing this in the market? Have you got competitors? Um, and then you can go on to say, well, actually, you know, I need investment of, and this is a bit that you really need to think about is I need investment of X amount, whatever the amount is, and then give reasons of why you need investment, that investment. So where will it be spent? It, will it be spent on salespeople? Will it be spent on product development? Will it, you know, be spent on um, having a, getting a unit of some sort, you know, that you need? So whatever it may be, you need to explain exactly how much you need, how much that's going to cost and why you need it. And I think when you kind of just simplify it like that, and, and, and actually what you should include in that business plan as well is very high level financial projections. And again, this is where people get nervous around financial projections and think, oh my God, I don't know anything about numbers or finance, but it's almost break it down. So what are your sales in year one? So what's your product? How much does it cost? 
and how many do you need to sell in order to make a certain amount and what is that amount and then actually it'll make you think yourself is that realistic have I priced my product correctly um will I you know if I price it at a pound I have to sell a thousand of them to make a thousand pounds whereas if I price them at 15 pounds and it comes down so it kind of helps you to price your product and then you just think okay then what are my costs associated with it so what are salaries what are the um you know any operational costs so bills electricity bills you might have if you've got an office or what the office costs whatever it may be so you know how much everybody's costing and then you've got a profit so just keep it very simple like revenue costs profit and that's it now and that's kind of what as a business is starting out and doing their EIS and SES application keep it simple um, because the government through the scheme really want to support small businesses so um, you know it's kind of it is it, it is kind of there for to you know they want to support you so um, but just try to give as much information as possible now you can get support you can get help from people to fill out these forms for you so it could be a local accountant it could be a local lawyer um, that can help you fill the forms out, actually. So you can get su support, but, you know, generally kind of prices vary, but you can get that support about £500 an application. Yeah, and the reason why the SEIS and the IS are attractive to investors is with the SEIS, uh, the investor gets 50% offset of their taxes, and there's 150000 cap, um, and then it moves to EIS, which is 30%. So, yeah, um, the, the investor obviously gets... Um, get some uh, you know money back <laughs> so it's always good um well i guess we're um we're coming to the end of our our time with you pardon um it's been a real pleasure having you on um i have a couple of questions so um are there any books that uh have been particularly in, impactful to you um in recent years that you would recommend our listeners read and then secondly if you were to meet one person for coffee um who who would that be um so books I read a ton of books to be honest I read so many different books but the way I you know kind of even you know I started off I remember when I was younger I read all of Warren Buffett's books um tap dancing to work he's got one which I really like um lessons in private equity and then actually as I kind of progressed and I set my own business I started to learn more about you know um skills of negotiating and skills of kind of and managing people as well and leadership books, various leadership books as well. Um, so si Simon Sinek has some good books as well on leadership and kind of, um, I think what's the book that I'm thinking of is, um, uh, I've forgotten the name. Is it The Power of Why? Not that one? No. It, no. no, it's about um, leaders eat second or something like that so yeah, no, leaders, leaders eat last leaders eat last yeah 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 leaders eat last i really yeah. like that it's really a great like book. book yeah um so that's a great book and i guess if i was to have coffee with anybody now i'd probably have coffee with my granddad oh how nice um because i think he's kind of taught me a lot and given me a lot um, so yeah I think I'd love to just to kind of talk about how you know the journey that I've come on and so I think that's what I'd like to do actually. yeah and actually one piece of advice if you could leave our audience maybe something you learned from your granddad maybe something you've learned um, what's one overarching piece of advice you'd like to leave our listeners I think it's you know 
have confidence in yourself. There's room for everybody in every industry and you will have knockbacks. You will come across hurdles. Every, everybody does, you know, it's difficult, but just don't give up. When you get knocked back, just keep going and keep going for what you want to do. And don't be scared to change what you want to do, to pivot, but just don't give up. And don't let anybody's opinion shrink your confidence. Your confidence is within you and it should always be the same, but don't let anybody shrink your confidence. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And I guess one final, if, um, if, if our listeners would like to follow your journey or get in touch with you regarding your private equity firm Voyager or where can they contact you? So I'm on, so the, uh, my business is Voyager Capital uh, Partners. So our web address is www.voyagercp.com. Um, and I'll be on LinkedIn. So my name, Pardic Proud, there are, I don't think there's another Pardic Proud on LinkedIn. So you'll find me quite easily. So you can connect with me. So yeah. So any old social media, um, Instagram or LinkedIn. Perfect. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us on the show today. Um, it's been awesome to have you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks thank you so, so much, Pardic. Brilliant. Thank you for listening to today's conversation with Pardip. I hope you found that really interesting and I hope you're actually going to be able to take some of her tips, maybe her step-by-steps to EIS or SEIS forward um, and go through that process yourself. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Flexi. Um, One thing that I love about Flexi when I use it um, is that you can actually do a buy once feature. So if you want to try a subscription before you actually start or commit, you can. They've got some great 10% off your first orders on their site. So I definitely go check it out. Remember, that is flexiapp.uk. That's F L E X Y app.uk. Have an amazing day. We'll see you next time.